Hey podcast listeners, Jim Siegler here. In 2016, we covered one of the most high-yield neurology topics, practically out of all of the Brainwaves podcast series. Dr. Ali Hamidani, who at the time was a senior neurology resident at Penn, shared his approach to the patient who presents with acute constant dizziness in this older episode, from the clinical features to the differential diagnosis. And we've done everything we could to remaster the audio and to update it for 2019. It's a bread and butter topic for any neurologist, and definitely a great primer for any medical provider who's treating a patient with dizziness. But as usual, I do have to say that everything we say on Brainwaves is intended for medical education only, and it's not to be used for clinical decision making. So when you see a patient coming in with dizziness, and they've got vertebral artery dissection, probably not a good idea to check their response to horizontal head impulse. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's just go back to the show we put together in 2016. Let's just start with a case of a patient who presents, and the one-liner you get from the ED is there's a 57-year-old woman who presents with dizziness. What kind of thoughts are immediately running through your head, and how do you approach this problem? Well, I think the elephant in the room when it comes to dizziness is what do people mean by dizziness? Uh, and it's a really challenging issue, not only because dizziness is hard for patients to describe and explain, but because it also means different things to different people. There are some formal definitions used in the literature that are kind of helpful. So I think it's the International Classification of Vestibular Disorders um, describes just dizziness as a sensation of altered spatial awareness and orientation. Uh, and that's used to contrast it from vertigo, which is described as the illusion of self-motion in its absence. So I think a couple of points that are worth noting about vertigo are that, number one, it doesn't include the word spinning. People can experience vertigo as rocking back and forth, swaying, bobbing up and down. So vertigo is a description of what you feel sort of internally, but not what you see. So that's a related term called oscillopsia, which is the illusion of motion of the visual surround in its absence. But you can definitely have one without the other. And while they're often due to similar processes, um, it can be helpful to differentiate between them. One of the things that I immediately think about is... When a patient complains of dizziness, are they complaining of lightheadedness and faintness? And one thing that can be particularly difficult for trainees, and I've definitely had my fair share of difficulty with this, is when patients feel unsteady on their feet due to other issues not attributable to vertigo or a central process. You know, that's definitely a great point that balance and movement require multiple modalities, not just vestibular proprioception and cerebellar coordination, but also proprioception from the peripheral nerves and spinal cord and, you know, appropriate motor coordination and things like that. You mentioned dizziness and lightheadedness and trying to differentiate that from other causes, uh, which is definitely something that uh, we try to do in the emergency department. I think the challenge there is that not only are the terms of dizziness and vertigo used interchangeably by different providers and patients, but the same patient will describe the same symptom in different words when asked by different people. This is actually something that's been well studied. And I think that has to do with not only history taking itself, but also the fact that these symptoms are intrinsically very difficult to explain. And so patients reach for different terms at different times in an effort to do so. Because getting at the symptom quality of dizziness is so challenging, What's in the literature been shown to be more helpful is rather than focusing on the quality, you know, is it spinning, is it not, is it vertigo, is it dizziness, is to focus more on the temporal quality, so the speed of onset and the duration and whether the symptoms have progressed or not. And so I divide dizziness and vertigo into four categories based off of the temporal characteristics. So there's acute constant dizziness, transient positional dizziness, recurrent spontaneous attacks of dizziness, and chronic progressive dizziness. 
And when I see someone with dizziness, I try to put them into one of these categories, and that helps me narrow down my differential. So let's go back to our case of the 57-year-old woman who comes in with dizziness in the ED, and when you evaluate her, she tells you that symptoms began 30 minutes ago and have not remitted, and she's never experienced something like this before. So that sounds like acute constant dizziness to me. One sort of question that always comes up is, is this the first attack of someone who will later go on to have recurrent spontaneous attacks of dizziness? And I guess there's no way to really know for sure, but I think because this is their first time, I would err on the side of focusing on the differential for acute constant dizziness, and if they get better and then come back later with another episode, we can then switch to something else. Here I'll jump in and say that the most concerning diagnoses in an adult patient are acute ischemic stroke or a posterior fossa hemorrhage. A head CT should almost always be obtained to rule out any sort of a brain bleed, but an MRI will be your go-to imaging test to identify any sort of a small brainstem or cerebellar infarct or demyelination. Other inflammatory causes, like vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis and rhombencephalitis, may also cause an acute constant dizziness. Other considerations here would be something like a vestibular neurotoxicity, something like what we see with anticonvulsants, phenytoin, carbamazepine, lamotrigine, and other medications like lithium and tricyclic antidepressants, amiodarone, antibiotics like gentamicin, and platinum-based chemotherapies, as well as alcohol. However, toxic ingestion and inflammatory processes typically present more subacutely over minutes to hours, while stroke or hemorrhage should be sudden. And this comes up a lot in the review of systems. Did a patient ever experience any recent fevers, chills, night sweats, or other viral prodrome before having an attack of vertigo? How often is that even a reliable indicator of having a vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis? In general, in neurology, when we talk about these post-viral vestibular neuritis or Guillain-Barre or something like that, I find it very challenging to use that information because viral gastroenteritis or upper respiratory infections are so common, I'm sure at one point, maybe 10 or 15% of the population is having it like right now as we speak, that if you talk to anyone in the ED with any symptom, I'm sure a lot of them had a recent viral infection. And I think on the other side, not everyone with vestibular neuritis has this antecedent history. Maybe they had it and they don't remember. So I think if you can get that history, it's nice. It maybe like makes for a better package when you're trying to sell the story to your attending. But I don't really use that that much to persuade or dissuade me from pursuing a particular diagnosis. For this patient who has an acute episode of vertigo, and you're trying to distinguish whether it's a vascular or an inflammatory cause, what are some of the little tricks you do in the ED to help differentiate the two? So in terms of history, I think there are a few things that can help, but the history tends to be a little bit limited. Uh, so for example, one thing you might uh, ask is whether there are any other neurologic symptoms besides dizziness. Um, and if there were more, like diplopia or dysphagia or dysphonia, that would definitely push you more uh, in the direction of a brainstem or cerebellar stroke. If there weren't, you might be tempted to lean more towards vestibular neuritis, but there are definitely patients who have stroke and who have dizziness as the only symptom. Peripheral causes of vertigo tend to produce more prominent uh, nausea and vomiting. So like whenever I see someone with a bucket next to them in the ED, I tend to be a little bit reassured. It's um, a terrible thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's, I feel better for them. 
sort of another thing that goes along those lines is hearing loss. You would think that hearing loss is a more peripheral localizing feature, which is true, but depending on where the stroke is and if it affects the peripheral cochlea and vestibular apparatus directly as opposed to just the brainstem, you can get hearing loss due to infarction of the labyrinthine artery, which is a branch off of the anterior inferior cerebellar artery, AICA. As part of the general exam, you know, when you're testing ocular motility, nystagmus would definitely be something to look for in someone with dizziness. I divide the exam techniques into two categories, ones that point very clearly towards a peripheral vestibular lesion, and then ones that point very clearly towards a, a brainstem or cerebellar lesion. In peripheral vestibular disease, the pattern of nystagmus is called vestibular nystagmus. It's unidirectional. Uh, and it obeys Alexander's law, which is to say that it increases in frequency and amplitude in the opposite direction of gaze from the site of reduced vestibular function. Um, it attenuates a little bit in primary gaze, and it's least prominent when looking towards the side of vestibular hypofunction. It also has a little horizontal and vertical component, and it persists in upgaze. Like, it has a persistent horizontal component in upgaze, which is uh, relatively unique in nystagmus. One test that's often done in the ED is the head impulse test, or head thrust. Patients ask to maintain fixation, usually on the examiner's nose, and then the head is turned rapidly to the left or right by about 30 degrees or so. And in normal vestibular function, the eyes maintain fixation. But if you turn the head towards a side of reduced vestibular function, the eyes won't maintain fixation, and then you'll see a catch-up saccade. And so that points very clearly towards peripheral vestibular dysfunction. The vestibular apparatus is tonically firing on both sides um, at all times, and if your head is level, then both sides are firing equally. If you tilt your head to one side, meaning if you try to take your ear and touch your shoulder, the side that you're tilting down would increase its activity, and then the side that you're tilting away from would decrease. The reason this is important is that we tilt our heads a little bit all the time, just maybe when the car is moving, when you're walking, and when we do that, our whole world doesn't tilt up and down. We compensate for it with our vision, and the way we do that is when you tilt your head to one direction, one eye will elevate an intort, and the other eye will depress an extort to try and maintain a normal, what's called subjective visual vertical, but to maintain your visual field in its proper orientation. Uh, in a skew, what happens is the pathway on one side that's responsible for maintaining that tonic vertical eye position decreases. So it basically tricks your brainstem into thinking that you've tilted your head one way, and so one eye is uh, elevated and intorted, the other is depressed and extorted as a result. Just to remind the audience, a skew is a vertical misalignment of the eyes, which cannot be attributed to a cranial nerve palsy, and it's best evaluated using alternating cover-uncover testing of either eye, or what I like to do is use pupillary translumination and watching exactly where your light falls on the cornea. Um, it's usually pretty comitant, meaning it's pretty equal in different directions of gaze. And localizing it's not too difficult. The vertical misalignment can be due to a midbrain lesion on the side of the higher eye, or it can be a medullary lesion on the side of the lower eye. So one way to remember this is high, high, low, low. Either high lesion on the high eye side or low lesion on the side of the lower eye. Skew is the third step in the bedside HINTS assessment, HINTS which refers to head impulse, nystagmus, and test of skew. And when you see a skew, it should always suggest brainstem disease. So one thing that comes up is sometimes people might mistake or kind of have difficulty differentiating a skew from a fourth nerve palsy, because a fourth can also cause a hyperphoria with otherwise pretty good motility. One key there is that in a fourth nerve palsy, the high eye is extorted, whereas in a skew, the high eye is intorted. Important point there. 
The high eye is extorted in the fourth nerve palsy because the superior oblique muscle pulls the eye down and in towards the eye, rotating it towards the nose. Patients won't really complain of a rotated visual world in this scenario. They'll probably only tell you that they're seeing double. So that's what you should know about skew when it comes to the Hintz battery. But seeing as the Hintz assessment is probably the most important take-home message from this week's program, I talked with Dr. Hamadani about it in more detail. This was published out of Hopkins in 2009 or so, uh, and is based on a study done in their emergency department there. Um, I guess one thing I want to emphasize about Hintz is that Hintz is designed to uh, identify a, a very clearly benign pattern. And so for that reason, patients who end up in the sort of non-benign or dangerous pattern may not necessarily have a stroke, but that just refers to patients who need further investigation. These two categories, benign and dangerous, they were used in the original paper, not because one was truly benign and one was dangerous. Benign patterns of the Hintz evaluation simply referred to the causes of dizziness that could be attributed to a peripheral process. And conversely, dangerous patterns referred to the causes of dizziness that localized to regions of the brainstem and could potentially represent stroke. So according to the Hintz study, a benign exam is someone who has an abnormal head impulse test and someone who has unidirectional horizontal nystagmus, and someone who doesn't have a skew. And so if any of those things are absent, then they, by definition, fall into the dangerous or worrisome category. This means someone with a normal head impulse test would be dangerous because that's not clearly peripheral. It means someone with no nystagmus at all would, would be dangerous because that's not clearly vestibular. So this study... For those of you who've heard me talk about stroke before, you know that I love my stroke trial acronyms. But Hintz was a really conveniently labeled study name for a three-step bedside neurologic assessment. And the investigators compared this clinical examination against early MRI with the outcome of an eventual brainstem lesion on follow-up imaging. Now, anybody who's actually read this paper can dissect it down and tear it apart. I mean, 76 of the 101 patients who had acute vestibular syndrome and had at least one stroke risk factor had a central cause of dizziness. I mean, that's crazy. Every time that I get called to see a patient who says they're dizzy, it's practically never a stroke. But what the investigators found was really amazing. They saw that the Hintz assessment had a 100% sensitivity and a 96% specificity for identifying a later brainstem lesion. It sounds pretty great, right? All right, so let's go back to the case then. So your patient, a 57-year-old woman with acute onset vertigo half an hour ago, actually has resolution of her symptoms in the ED, and she says that they seem to have changed with regard to her position in space. I guess symptoms that are very clearly positional uh, and resolved sort of would fall more in the category of transient positional dizziness. In the world of neurology, this is in large part synonymous with benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, but it's important to keep in mind that orthostatic hypotension, or um, I guess dizziness that's due to global hypoperfusion of the cerebral hemispheres, could also be positional too. I think one thing to keep in mind is that BPPV should be elicited by specific head maneuvers in an ideal scenario. So someone who says that it's worse when they turn their head to their right, worse when they are kind of laying in bed or something like that. And the reason I say that is that anyone with any vestibular cerebellar lesion of any kind will report worsening symptoms with, with like nonspecific head motion. And so you really, ideally, your history would say that symptoms are worse with a specific maneuver rather than just any head movement in any direction. BPPV is interesting in that it is the only vestibular disorder that is due to excess activation of one side. So what happens here is you have crystals that form in the semicircular canals, uh, and when they obstruct the semicircular canals, they cause increased firing of that canal, which then causes overactivation of the vestibular nuclei on that side. 
Um, and that's in contrast to stroke and inflammatory diseases and everything else that are decreased uh, activity. So that's what happens pathologically. And when you're localizing the lesion, you should be thinking, is one side hypofunctional or is one side hyperfunctional? Your patient will have the same symptoms, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, some head motion intolerance, imbalance. But which side is injured and how? The answer is all about the eyes. In peripheral vestibular hypofunction, the eyes drift towards the affected side, and then there's a corrective saccade generated by the frontal eye fields in the opposite direction. That's where we get Alexander's law from, that we say that the nystagmus is beating in the opposite direction of the side of decreased vestibular activity. BPPV, then, as you'd imagine, is the opposite. For posterior canal BPPV, the eyes will drift away from the affected side with a fast-beating nystagmus in the direction toward the hyperactive canal. The other thing is that the two causes of transient positional dizziness that we discussed, orthostasis and BPPV, both cause pretty brief dizziness, meaning on the order of a few minutes. Um, And so when someone tells me that they've had four hours of dizziness, that to me is not BPPV. Sometimes people have BPPV, they have a few minutes of intense dizziness, and then they feel unwell for a longer period of time afterwards. And so eliciting that history can be helpful, but if it's truly dizziness of equal severity for longer than several minutes, then I start to wonder about whether these are non-positional or spontaneous attacks of dizziness. By far the most common uh, type of BPPV is the posterior canal BPPV. This is where you use the Dix-Hallpike maneuver, and so when uh, someone turns their head 45 degrees towards the affected side and the head is in your supine and the head is dangling back, you see nystagmus that is sort of mixed vertical and rotary towards the down ear. Um, so that's posterior canal BPPV. It's the most common because laying back is kind of a common position to be in, and it's the easiest way from a gravitational standpoint for these otoconia to get down there. Horizontal canal BPPV is the next most common one. It accounts for about 10 to 15% of all cases of BPPV, while posterior canal BPPV accounts for 80% of cases, just to give you an idea. The nystagmus is elicited in horizontal canal disease, we're talking, by the supine 45-degree head turn. Basically, it's a type of nystagmus that mimics gaze-evoked nystagmus. It's more or less purely horizontal because you're dealing with the horizontal semicircular canal, and there are what are called geotropic and apogeotropic forms, and that just depends on when you turn the head to one side, is the nystagmus more prominent in that direction of gaze or in the opposite direction of gaze? Uh, It can be a pretty tricky form, and you know, because it looks like gaze of nystagmus, these are patients who frequently need neuroimaging to rule out a, a cerebellar lesion. And then the least common form is anterior canal BPPV. This one is actually also elicited by the Dix-Hallpike maneuver, but you would see nystagmus in the opposite direction of gaze. So it would be downward and rotary. Just because we talk so frequently about EPLI as kind of a curative maneuver for patients with BPPV, can you tell us how that is basically an extension of the Dix-Hallpike maneuver and how effective it is? The first step of the Epley maneuver is the Dix Hallpike maneuver. You get in that position, uh, and then the, the head is turned 90 degrees, and then the patient rolls onto their opposite side, and then sits back up is basically how it works. I think the key is to make sure that patients spend enough time in those positions. Um, so it's ideally at least 30 seconds in that position before they move on to the next one. It's especially difficult in the beginning because the beginning of the Epley maneuver is the Dix Hallpike maneuver, which is the very maneuver that's meant to elicit their symptoms and their nystagmus. And patients hate this. Patients often reflexively try to sit up. 
they may be vomiting. Terminate those symptoms, and so you have to encourage them to stay lying there. Say, hey, this is supposed to fix the problem. Just give it a minute. And probably give it a few tries before you give up. I don't think there's such a thing as doing it too often, except that sometimes during the Epley maneuver, you can actually move the crystal out of the posterior canal and into one of the other canals. So some, that's actually most often when those two, when those other types of BPPV happen, it's often as a consequence of the Epley maneuver in treating posterior canal BPPV. So the Epley maneuver, it's a standard of care when you've made the diagnosis of a posterior canal BPPV, but often some providers just, they don't have the patience to go through the steps of the Epley and they resort to using something like meclizine, a drug which does work and I've seen it work, but it's kind of like a band-aid for BPPV. So I asked Dr. Hamadani about his thoughts, and he agreed. So I'm not a huge fan of the antihistamines uh, as a treatment for dizziness, especially tr- very transient dizziness like BPPV. First of all, the medications can be sedating, but also they, like any medication, take a while to be absorbed and take a while for their effect to kick in. And if someone takes meclizine at the first sign of symptoms of BPPV, chances are the symptoms will actually resolve before the medication has even been absorbed. So I think those medications are more helpful in constant dizziness like in vestibular neuritis, but I don't think that they're quite as helpful in BPPV. It's also thought that meclizine and other symptomatic measures like scopolamine patches, they may actually sensitize the vestibular nerve after a few days of use. And once the patient finally feels better, they'll stop using the meclizine, but they may experience relapse of symptoms. All right, so that's enough about BPPV. Last, Dr. Hamadani discussed his next category, recurrent spontaneous dizziness. I think this is the category with uh, one of the more broad differentials. The two most common ones uh, would be vestibular migraine and Meniere's disease. Uh, it's increasingly recognized that dizziness and vertigo are common symptoms in migraine. Sometimes they occur with migraine, sometimes independent of migraine in people with a history of migraine. And rarely someone with recurrent spontaneous attacks of dizziness without any other symptoms might be called sort of acephalgic vestibular migraine or something like that. Meniere's disease is a disease of vestibular uh, dysfunction of unclear etiology, but thought to be due possibly to um, excess fluid in the semicircular canals. Um, this causes recurrent attacks of dizziness lasting hours or even a day, accompanied by progressive lower frequency hearing loss. Um, the other symptoms might include a sensation of oral fullness or something like that. Other things to keep in mind, so panic attacks have a myriad of symptoms that accompany them. Dizziness is often one of them. There are also some unusual things in this category that are not very common, but I think are interesting and have some unique features, so it might be things to look out for. There's one condition called the superior canal dehiscence syndrome, or sometimes this is due to like an endolymphatic fistula. This is basically when there's a defect in the bony canal that surrounds the semicircular canals, and the, therefore the canal herniates through this bony defect. To me, this is interesting because um, these patients sometimes complain of symptoms that are elicited by uh, Valsalva or coughing or sneezing or things like that. So um, dizziness that's evoked by those processes or sometimes also by loud noise, um, which is called Tulio phenomenon, points to one of those etiologies. And your last category that you described is chronic progressive dizziness. Uh, In this category, I think of structural toxic and and inflammatory kind of disorder. So structural will be something like a vestibular schwannoma or meningioma at the cerebellopontine angle. One kind of interesting history element that can sometimes be seen in vestibular schwannoma is nystagmus that's elicited by hyperventilation. And this is thought to occur due to transiently improved conduction through the defective vestibular nerve. 
Another interesting thing about lesions of the cerebellar pontine angle is you can get a mixture of vestibular nystagmus and cerebellar nystagmus if you have a meningioma that's compressing both the eighth cranial nerve and the cerebellar hemisphere. Um, this is called Bruns nystagmus. So this is vestibular in contralateral gaze from the side of the lesion and then is more cerebellar gaze evoked when looking ipsilateral to the side of the lesion. Other things in this category would be toxic vestibulopathy due to immunoglycosides or platinum-based chemotherapy or something like that. Because there's symmetry to this disease process, it's, you know, you may have the, like, head impulse test may not be clearly abnormal, or it may be abnormal but bilaterally, so which is kind of a little bit harder to interpret. And they may not feel a sense of rotation towards one side because both sides are down equally. One exam technique that's useful for bilateral vestibulopathy is to test dynamic visual acuity. So normally, if you are testing someone's vision with both eyes, let's say they're 20-20, and then you passively rotate their head sort of left to right at 2 hertz, normally you should only lose one or two lines of vision because both of your vestibular systems are able to maintain fixation. But if you lose a lot of visual acuity, that suggests uh, difficulty maintaining fixation, um, which can be due to bilateral vestibular dysfunction. So what are some other then there are a few other conditions that are worth thinking about that can cause a chronic progressive dizziness or a chronic vestibulopathy. Some of them are immune-related, like lupus, vestibular neuritis, or labyrinthitis, as we've discussed. And one of them, which is probably best known among stroke neurologists, is Suzak syndrome, which can cause branch retinal artery occlusions, lesions of the corpus callosum, and chronic low-frequency hearing loss. It's an autoimmune endotheliopathy. Another is Kogan syndrome, which is autoimmune vestibulopathy that's accompanied by episcleritis. Both of those are treated with corticosteroids, usually. And then lastly, there's a catch-all term called chronic subjective dizziness, which can occur after someone has had previous bout of acute constant dizziness or transient positional dizziness. So if someone had vestibular neuritis, they largely recovered, but they still have a persistent sensation of imbalance who then got better. This is also poorly understood, but it's thought to have some kind of neuropsychiatric bases, that it's uh, driven a little bit by anxiety, and this are often treated with cognitive behavioral therapy and vestibular rehab. What are some of the points that our listeners should take away from this episode? In a nutshell, how I would summarize everything is that I think dizziness is a challenging symptom to evaluate. It's challenging for patients to deal with and everything. But I think you should feel empowered as a neurologist to tackle it. And to me, it's one of the more rewarding complaints to evaluate in the emergency department because, you know, if you approach it with a certain framework and use the right exam techniques, you can often elicit an answer that someone else wasn't able to do. And that's what we had for you in 2016. And if you're interested, you can check out a great personal account of an acute vestibular syndrome. It was Mike Rubenstein's story that came out in episode 119. But other than that, I don't think that there have been any major updates in vestibular testing or diagnosis since we originally aired this show in 2016. As we're wrapping up, I do just want to thank all you guys for checking out the Brainways podcast and spreading the word about what we're doing. If you enjoyed the show, that's great for us to hear, and we'd love to get your feedback. Send us a review on iTunes, follow us on Twitter or Facebook, all at Brainwaves Audio, or you can send us a message at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. And if you've got an idea for an upcoming show, send it our way. We love getting listener feedback. The program this week was produced out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Jim Siegler, senior producer. Music was courtesy of John Bartman and Kevin McLeod. Sound effects by Daniel Simeon and Mike Koenig. As a friendly reminder, Brainwaves is intended for medical education only and should not be used for clinical decision making. I'm Jim Siegler, and I'll talk to you again soon.